0: Riech Und Ehre, was ich dir noch angesäche. So bist du sie alle Ehre. Was ist? Wohl
1: New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. And this is Matt Pegas. And this is episode 18, uh, which we tentatively might title, Sunbathing at the End of Time, provided that is uh, something that our guest, Nick Dollinger, approves, because he recently published a an epic poem called "Sunbathing I Want To," which is uh, kind of imagining Carthage, or rather New York City, as a modern-day version of Carthage, and um, that is, you know, just a very unique and, and awesome idea. And uh, Nick Nick Dollinger is uh, also, in addition to that, he's written for Expat Press, uh, various articles. He is a, uh, a real-life reporter for the Epoch Times in, uh, you know, real-life journalism. And, um, yeah, it uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Nick.
2: Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a perfectly acceptable title for what it's worth. Um, and... Yeah, I guess uh, this book uh, that uh, that we will be discussing—it's uh, almost two years old now. This was a uh, kind of my uh, coronavirus uh, or like early coronavirus self-publishing vanity project. Um, so I'm really flattered that you guys have taken the time to look into it because, you know, it was a uh, pretty pivotal for me. I guess uh, you know I wanted to like have a book out there, a print object with my name on it, and uh, uh, you know. you know recognizing that there's like kind of like a stigma about that about self-published books but nonetheless like you know i just thought it would be a a good use of my time you know for sure i don't think there's a
3: stigma anymore by the way i mean i think on our podcast at least we're always trying to to make that stigma less and less because i mean like i I, of all the books the last like 10 books i've read have all been like self-published you know with that little uh amazon thing in the back where it says like where it was printed and whatnot um and the more i read of them the more i like don't even think twice about it and the more it's just like this is where literature is happening is pretty much in the self-publishing spaces or or even publishers like expat you know like they're they're, they're great presses or, or terror house where i publish my book like e- even that it's, it's within that wheelhouse i don't think there's any shame uh, in self-publishing the book is, is what i'm trying to say Oh, thank you. Um, and I definitely, you know, I, I enjoyed sunbathing. I want to a great deal, um, and yeah, I definitely. I, I feel like um, I kind of uh, published my first book in a, in a somewhat parallel way. Um, technically, had a publisher, but it's you know, it's Terror House Press, so it's a smaller publisher, kind of a similar idea. And you know, right around the same time that that you released this book, I uh, had kind of. Um, my book actually wasn't published till about a year ago now, so there was like a year period in between when I sent it out and when it finally got published. But, but that was my you know debut as well. It's you know it's also you know a shorter shorter book, and all this is to say, I totally get it. You know, you get get the first book out there with your name on it; it feels pretty good. Yeah,
1: um, I mean, also yeah. just to chime in there, a lot of the best books right now are self-published just because traditional publishers won't really touch them. So delicious tacos, I think we all know and love, uh, like who has, uh, you know, published a book that has had more influence than Bronze Age Mindset. And Mm -hmm. that is of course self-published and like, yeah, find me a a book that more people have, you know, like has influenced the, the discourse more than, uh, than BAPS. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a lot of great self-published stuff out there.
3: For sure. And I think the stigma will will continue to evaporate even more, like even with stuff that isn't so dissident. I just think people and writers are starting to realize that having all these middlemen in the way is just a way to make less money and a way to, you know, have even more of a buffer time between, you know, when you finish your book and when you publish. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, self-publishing is the way of the future.
1: Great. I'm glad to hear it. So one thing that I... Obviously, we're going to talk about some, than I want to. But uh, we both read, and you know, if you don't want to get into this, that's fine. But we uh, read the essay you wrote for um, Expat about Rittenhouse, Four Faces. Mm-hmm. And we uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. So uh, if you're up for talking about Oh, yeah, that, I'd be happy to discuss that. Yeah, no, no worries. Okay, yeah. No, I mean, like, that was obviously a huge flashpoint for just everyone really and drew like, you know, a ton of attention from all corners of, you know, media and society and and the internet. And, um, your take on it was, and, you know, correct me if I'm, you know, not, uh, stating it correctly, but is that the, um, you know, though you sympathize more with, uh, with Kyle, that the other characters are intriguing or not characters the you know the men he shot are interesting <laughs> and uh and not only are they interesting in some respects are um you know more relatable because what Kyle did was like you know that is you know I mean we could get into the you know the morality or whatever but i think many people would say that picking up arms to defend your home and community is a very laudable thing and but it is something that is like an unfortunately somewhat foreign to you know a lot of contemporary urbanites like you know I, you know as someone who is an urbanite myself like the idea of picking up arms to defend my neighbors I'm like, I don't even fucking know my neighbors. So, uh, you know, like I, I would like to think that I'm that type of person, but, um, you know, unfortunately I'm probably not, uh, at least not, you know, uh, in this context. And so you said that you relate, um, somewhat to the character, (laughs) to the person of, uh, I think Anthony Hoover is his name. And Mm -hmm. he he was the, the guy with the skateboard who Rittenhouse um, uh, shot. And he has a complicated history of uh, domestic violence and uh, a lot of, you know, kind of like um, he's, you know, a rebel, but kind of like was a rebel within the context of the system. And like, Mm -hmm. he wanted to like, clearly had a lot of masculine aggression but he was not, um, he was not based, shall we say. And he, uh, he kind of sought to channel it in like various, you know, Antifa-esque oriented ways. And so that was very interesting. And uh, so I, I've just talked a lot about that. So what what's your uh, insight into it, Nick?
2: Yeah, I would say the way that I would describe that piece is that, um, well, I mean, first of all, like there were like a lot of people told me not to publish that. Um <laughs> uh, you know, people of all persuasions, like for completely different and uh uh conflicting reasons. Um and you know, I get it. It's like I've just like attached my government name to an essay about staring at dead pictures of dead bodies. Uh, You know, people also said they, you know, the audience might uh, be less charitable um, when they say that I just stumbled on these pictures. I swear it's true. Like, uh, uh, you know, it it stands out like a sore thumb in Google images, but um, I would say, you know, there are a few like what I would consider pretty small gestures at provocation. And I wanted to like, kind of uh, uh, just, uh, pass over the moral issues or like the controversy because it seems very black and white to me and then you know use it as like a kind of like uh uh hand-wringing like uh uh morality uh study you know and it's not just uh huber but also you know i have like a I have like, uh, I have, like an, a sense of identification with uh uh gross um Mm-hmm. 'Cause you know, you would look at like uh Huber and uh um uh who's the other one? Rosenbaum, mm-hmm. and they both uh did like genuinely like ugly things, whereas there's something very like pathetic about uh Gross Kreutz, and you know, I I, I I
1: honestly find it hard not to pity the man. Um true, yeah. Yeah. I uh I conflated yeah, no. the two in my mind, Gross and Huber for you know, for what it's worth right now. And huh. yeah. But
3: one thing that you wrote, Nick, that I think Dan and I both found to be an uncommon insight, and, and for in my case, um, I share the point of view, is that you look at some of these uh, Antifa types, shall we say, especially in the case of um, Huber, but perhaps Grosskreutz as well. Rosenbaum, obviously, uh, a bit more of a colorful history even than theirs. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, you look at some of these, and just in general, you look at Antifa type people, and I don't know, you know... Um, I've been, I, you know, I flirted with being of the left earlier in life. And there's this sense that even that, 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 um, a couple of different choices or something could have led me down a path to be a person like that, or at the very least, you know, I I've definitely known a lot of guys like that. And that one, that's what really stood about out to me in your expat piece is that sense of like, this could have been me, or like the reason that I am different than some of these Antifa types some of it's kind of random, like, you know, life leads people to different places. And I I thought that was a really uh, profound insight.
2: Yeah. You know, the irony of it is I've never really been drawn to like the hard left stuff just because it all seems like very, it's always seemed like very like um, austere and kind of unpleasant to me. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that there was like more appeal in just being like an earnest, like libtard than uh, (laughs) being like, uh, you know, like, it's just like super socialist or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like and you know, I have like uh sympathies in that direction now, but like just like being like straightforwardly like an Antifa, like never really uh appealed to me because it all just seemed so immature and like juvenile. Um yeah.
3: no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean a lot of those people I, I think there's and I think this also comes through in your piece a bit, like it's a combination of extreme left views, but also like kind of a, being a gutter punk or a street person. A lot of them have various traumas, you know, in their lives. Um, and, you know, I, I, a lot of them, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're blameless. A lot of them are like just bad and scummy people, no doubt.
4: Mm-hmm. But, yeah.
3: um, but I do think, you know, you find the humanity in some of them in your piece and that there is that element to consider.
2: Well, you know, um, and one thing I guess that's worth mentioning is like my read on uh, uh, Rosenbaum was like very uh, distinct from the other two in that like i don't think he had like a sincerely leftist bone in his body except in so far as like he uh um you know except in so far as he's like this force of like social entropy like kind of incarnate but um mm-hmm. he like y- you know you said earlier like uh huber like he has all this masculine aggression but he's not based like in a sense like he's a horrible person but you could probably like argue that rosenbaum actually is kind of based um right <laughs> um Yeah, I guess uh, also like, you know, as far as like the composition of this thing, it was, uh, you know, when it was like really everywhere, like ubiquitous, like uh, cultural issue, um, this was getting blasted all the time. And I just like kind of had this scheme. I'm like, oh, I'm going to write this like hand-wringing personal essay about it. You know, how can I make this about me? Um, And then, uh, uh, you know, I basically wrote like 90% of it in like a flurry of like a few hours. And then I sat on it for like two weeks like not getting around to editing it and then by the time i got around to editing it it was like just like barely like relevant anymore so um
1: yeah i mean yeah uh, sorry i digress but the, the beauty of no, uh, the it, house it, is that like this issue is like you know it's evergreen in a sense it's you know it's kind of the culture war uh, encapsulated and yeah no it's I, I think it's like still as relevant as when it was going on
2: yeah, I liked it as a, I kind of like the way that it turned out because it drew a little less heat than it might have if it had dropped like when it was really hot. Um, and also just, I, you know, I like the idea that this is like my little coda to the event, you know, for like the, the maybe the 30 or so people that read it, like, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it, um, I mean, with regard to its ongoing relevancy, Matt and I were talking about how, and this is kind of a, uh, uh, a through line to Sunbathing I Want To where in the preface to Sunbathing I Want To you discuss how the, sig- the active nihilism of the 1960s stands in contrast to the passive nihilism of today mm-hmm. and uh, this, this passive nihilism, and I've, I've long actually maintained something that's very similar that the various decisions that were made socially and politically in the 60s have, uh, you know, essentially caused uh, all many of our problems today, and, um, and will, you know, are, you know, essentially, in many respects, unable to be rolled back. And it's created that sort of state that you described the kind of passive decay, the passive nihilism, which you associate with uh, pornography, and video games and kind of like a, um, a preference for meta living instead of actual living. And it's in this kind of environment that like someone like, um, uh, gross Grouts or Huber, like this is the climate in which people, you know, grow up to, you know, become, um, you know, maladjusted like that. That's my sense at least.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like for me, it was important to like uh, draw these distinctions. and like really to like emphasize like the dissimilarity of these three figures that I have. And, you know, there's like meant to be like some, uh, uh, ambiguity about which, uh, who the four faces belong to, because, you know, in the title that is, um, but, uh, um, I think uh yeah I guess like if what they have in common is in different ways these are like failures to launch and like they're all people that are like uniquely maladjusted to modernity as far as like your earlier point um I mean that's like really like the big point that I wanted to dri- drive in uh uh sunbathing I want to skip you uh was that like uh force of um that like there's kind of like this promethean uh instinct that people uh you know uh, are inclined to like make like broad like glorious acts of rebellion that are against like the natural law which are uh aesthetically gratifying uh but unsustainable and that Mm. the later stages of that that passive nihilism is kind of um you know the end state of that and you know people will turn to like more and more uh, uh deranged and uh unsustainable and unhinged behaviors to like kind of uh salvage something but like really like I mean, in this sense, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like all of the, the men in question, except maybe uh, Gr- uh, Grosskreutz, like, uh, you know, they would embody like a kind of uh, active nihilism. Yeah. Um, they're like the last uh, vestiges of that in a way, because like, you know, what I like when I say passive nihilism, I mean, just like uh, the kind of like blank stare at like uh, at, at a screen like, uh, you know, pornography and, uh, uh, you know, these things that, like, it's not even fun anymore. It's just like, uh, just like this kind of, like, uh, Soma, you know.
3: Yeah, I mean, not not to jump ahead in the conversation, but the, the passive nihilism is is really well encapsulated by the beginning of Sunbathing, I Want To, the, Han- the Hannibal character, you know, with his huh. video games and his pornography, and we'll get into that. Huh. Um, but I really, uh, in Scipio... I'm probably not going to say this right, but in Scipio Amelianus, is that how you say it? I should know yeah, yeah. as an educated person, but um, yeah, the, the one January, the January 1st 2020 section where you write about how there was this powerful, um, I think you, yeah, you talk about Prometheus and you also use the image of the Ouroboros of the, you know, the snake swallowing itself and how, uh, yeah, definitely one of the, one of the most powerful, maybe sections of the entire uh, book, uh, both poems to me uh, was that section where you, describe the the power of that Ouroboros in the 60s you know as being something that was present on Cielo Drive and strangled Richard Nixon all these powerful images of of an active uh, sort of I I always think of uh, Alistair Crowley um, and the sort of do what thou wilt element of the 60s Um, you kind of lay out how that had a certain power even a certain vitalism which you don't praise but you acknowledge as a certain vitalism in the 60s and then that sort of uh degrades uh, in some sense uh toward the passive nihilism that we have today yeah i
2: think like you can't like uh really critique it without understanding its magnificence and so that's why i tend to like uh really like gravitate towards like the cultural norms of like the 1970s i think uh Mm-hmm. uh you know cuz it still feels fresh and like uh transgressive because it wasn't its time and like you know even if the content of it like is nothing like i was just talking to someone earlier today i was explaining uh like she had never heard of uh the beatles uh yesterday and today are you familiar uh yeah with the it's no. like the, the collectible album cover with like the dismembered babies oh no i'm, I'm not familiar vaguely <laughs>
3: It rings a bell, but so yeah, I don't know
2: how this slipped through the cracks. But in uh, uh, 1965, when like the boy, or maybe it was 1966, but like the Beatles, like they were still like basically in like their boy band phase, Um, and somehow they their record label allowed them to put out a a compilation album where the cover art was just like them in like uh, butchers' aprons holding like uh, dismembered babies, and. (laughs) This was obviously pulled from stores within days, um, which is why it's like such a collector's item now. But, um, you know, I was like saying, like, that's really like, like, it, it's in- still incredible, even though we wouldn't really be that shocked by it now. Like, you know, Kanye will do something like that. And people are just like, oh, that's Kanye. But, um, mm-hmm. but you know, there's this like a certain like majesty to uh, the Beatles yesterday and today. Um yeah, so that's sure. a little bit of a tangent, but um no, no,
3: no, because dismembered babies are are pretty relevant to both poems. Oh, true, yeah. <laughs> you and the image of Moloch and Ball and and sacrificing children to deities um looms large, I would say, in sunbathing I Want To. Uh <laughs> wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah, yeah. And And, this is like the
2: uh, like very like, uh, you know, kind of like uh, conservative, like Catholic critique of Carthage. And like there's a very easy parallel to draw with abortion. And I I wanted to avoid that in sunbathing. I want to proper because I thought it was very on the nose to like frame it that way. And so I'm like, oh, well, what if it's like actually like, uh, you know, it's just like the child sacrifice is like structural violence under capitalism or something, or like, you know, what if it's just like the, like more abstractly, like the kind of uh, 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 contempt of the future. Yeah. Uh, And and like having progeny and like antinatalism. And so, you know, like not that I think that the uh, abortion comparison is unfair, it was just more a matter of like, um, you know, avoiding like the most obvious thing because that, uh, that point has definitely been made before
3: um well I think it's played really well because I I mean if I read if I interpret it correctly there is a a part in uh in the Scipio section the Scipio poem that sort of uh, bookends sunbathing I want to where uh there is a pretty if I read it correctly there is a pretty explicit discussion of abortion it's very well rendered But but thank you yeah but in sunbathing I want to you are operating in a more um uh, so slightly less on the nose about abortion proper, but talking about yeah the cancellation of the future. The and uh, you, in, in your intro you talk about like you know the that Joan Didion image of like the psychedelic toddlers. Like the, it's a it's mm-hmm. a very uh, powerful image of mm-hmm. children either being literally killed or um, being um, you know sacrificed uh, for hedonistic pleasures. I, you know again either literally in the case of the only abortion or metaphorically in the case of society just becoming entirely inhospitable to
4: children <laughs> um
3: it, it's all very well um very well rendered and yeah i understand the urge to not initially write about abortion because it, it you don't want to necessarily come out swinging like i wrote an anti-abortion poem or something mm-hmm. like how right. do you, you know you, you win people over by being a little more abstract at first i think but it's
2: yeah it's just like uh you know i i didn't want to well, I, I guess uh, we're solidly on like uh, sunbathing. I want to keep you I'm really honest right now, right? So, yeah, I guess uh, t- just to give a little context about like the um, the relationship of these two, I would I wrote most of sunbathing I want to in like the summer of 2018. I think um, I was not really uh, uh, Catholic at the time. I was just starting to get into christianity more generally um and i wasn't really based either um but you know i've always kind of had like a politically incorrect way but Mm -hmm. like uh um and i wasn't really online that much um but i uh yeah i was just um Well, I had read The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton, which was a very uh, influential work for me. Um, And that's where a lot of, like, the Carthage content comes from. All of the chapter titles in *Sunbathing* I Want to proper are taken from uh, just, like, uh, what I thought were phrases that stood out from The Everlasting Man. Hmm. And, like, his, like, uh, you know, kind of, like, poetic way of imagining uh, Carthaginian society um, always, like, stood out to me. Um, So... Then I sat on that for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I basically like didn't do anything with it because I felt like my poetry was very anachronistic and off trend and basically like unpublishable. So I was really like uh, more or less like just uh, keeping it to myself. You know, hoping that eventually I would find an audience, but you know, it, feeling like very uh, out of the scene. Then. Um, Scipio Aemilianus, I guess I would frame it as like a thematic sequel. It's named uh, after the general who like uh, assaulted Carthage. Um, yeah. And so like my vision for it was like, after like this more iconoclastic work that I wanted to um, create like a positive moral vision in like a philosophical sense. Um, I uh, I don't know, I, I say like a uh, positive uh, and you know, my friends will be like, oh, but literally like nine out of 10 of these poems are involve like some kind of like dismembered body or whatever. But like, to me, it was just, like meant to be like an uplifting alternative, Um <laughs> But yeah, and that, like that, I basically like uh, conceptualized like during the time period that it covers actually, and then I wrote it much more spontaneously uh, right as I was like preparing the manuscript for uh, uh, self-publishing in like May of 2020 for the most part. There are parts of it that were written like right around the time that it covers, but um, you know, the, the, in keeping with the diaristic format, but um, that was a much more spontaneous creation. And honestly, like I think that's the one that I'm uh, most proud of today because um and it is like meant to fit together as a cohesive whole. Like you mentioned, like the image of the Ouroboros and my purpose in uh, ending scoopy Milianus* on the way that I did, um, the poem that I did and like trying to like harken back to like the Xbox images so that like the sh- shape of the book itself almost has that kind of like structure of like the mm-hmm. serpent eating its tail.
4: Sure.
2: Um, and just on the subject of the abortion poem, I mean, that was, uh, that was for, um, I think it was December uh twenty eighth. Um it's the day of the Catholic feast of um uh the holy innocents on that day. Um on the, the Catholic liturgical calendar was like a big influence in how I framed like the days of um uh Um and you know that one for me like I guess like the epiphany or like that provoked that. Um it's very on the nose, but um the way the reason why I wanted to approach it that way is that I felt like it's very hard for a Christian man to repent of having premarital sex without appearing to brag about it um (laughs) you know there's like something about it that because of like culture or whatever it's like going to be perceived as a flex and so I thought like the way to circumvent this and like do some kind of like public repentance is to really like bring it to like this like corporeal like level of like uh the violence that comes out of it and to like try to like demystify it that way
3: yeah so it, that's 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 how i read it you know um it it's uh quite brutal but uh but you know
2: there's like the whole like ima- if you just go around saying like oh i'm such a sinner like you know i fuck so much <laughs> like <laughs> it's like oh yeah all right okay chad but like yeah if you can like bring it make it about like you know well this is what happens like because of that like i think it loses a lot of that glamour and, you know, I'm very, mm-hmm. like, unironically like, Catholic, but like, I really, uh, you know, I, I t- t- try to, like, uh, be very, like, literal and, like, uh, straightforward
1: about, you know, these, like, moral beliefs. But um... mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was rendered very well, the, the idea of, um, I think there was a, the line was something like the, the sins or the wages of fornication. And like Mm -hmm. you like, you know, obviously understand that fornication is a sin, but you, you know, it, it hammered home, like, well, that's one of the reasons why at least contemporarily in, you know, today's context Mm -hmm. where there is abortion, like, yeah, that, uh, that leads to very bad things potentially. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, rendered very well though. So, uh, good. Oh, thank you. Good on you there. Uh-huh. some other parts, not to go on too much of a digression here, but, uh, in general in the poem, I really enjoyed the, um, mix of, uh, you know, New York City, uh, landmarks and, and you know, examples of modernity and mixing that with classical metaphors and classical references. And it creates a, a dissonance that's, you know, both like striking and very funny. So, like the line which, you know, kind of um, uh, juxtaposed Moloch with Columbia <laughs> was uh, <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I didn't exactly think of it that way. But yeah, I, the presence of Moloch is strong. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: <laughs> yeah, this was also like uh, around 2018. I was hanging out a lot at one of the uh, uh, Columbia frat houses. I had a friend who was in that frat. And
1: uh, I um, didn't notice the beta reference.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. And like, uh, um, I guess, um, you know, I was just like trying to draw and like things that were in my life at the time, like the the little kitten at the fraternity house and uh, um, there's like this wall of um, uh, like former presidents or whatever of this fraternity. And I was just like, I looked one up at random. I just like Googled like one of the names and it's like, Oh, he's the president of Amtrak. Like, um, and so, you know, that was like the kind of like images of, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Hamilcar or whatever, like the, the Carthaginian elders, like was, Mm -hmm. uh, meant to kind of, uh, Encapsulate that, yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of like very inside references, I guess, that only like makes sense to me. But um, you know, I I just hope that it's like a, a meaningful. Well,
1: I think any and, New worker yeah, like the... would get like maybe not Beta, but I mean Beta people understand that that's a fraternity. Although it's it's very mm-hmm. interesting. I was talking with someone um, who had went to Columbia, and uh, the like the the you know beta fraternity it was like not like something that was uh you know like just like oh yeah the betas but like now like i Mm -hmm. wonder like today like you know like you don't want to have your fraternity name be the betas well i uh
2: i don't even know if it was actually the betas that i was at um because i may i don't remember if i like changed the name of the fraternity like changed it arbitrarily to like you know, protect the ideas okay. of, like, the people involved, which is silly, you know, for my book that, like, uh, you know, umpteen people read, but um, uh, it, nonetheless, like, you know, I didn't want to, like, get uh, uh, any, like, inadvertent, like, bad publicity to them or anything, so I don't, oh, may or may not have changed the name, I don't even, I, I, I don't know, I feel like it was, like, Sigma something, but, like, um, yeah, I don't remember um, whether the, what the name, the actual name of the fraternity was, and then, Yeah, what is it like? uh, The Coke Palace line. um, Who did I say? Um, That was a like. Hmm. Was it like Jack Chang? Coke Palace spit and phlegm. Yeah, I do. Yeah, wait, that's not
3: familiar. Hold on.
2: Yeah, and that was based on something they sent to their uh, frat group chat, uh, (laughs) and uh, I had you know I wanted I actually really liked the uh, uh, the. the sound of the phrase with the person's original name but I had to uh you know I didn't want I didn't want to put out a book where like this random guy
1: that I like barely met like uh (laughs) (laughs) sure sure yeah Yeah. palace so good idea uh, but yeah, no, the New York references, like, woven throughout the text is very, like, even if you don't know New York well, like, you it, you can sense the way modernity is being, like, you know, sandwiched together with classical, the classical world, and it, you know, it both, like, it seems very odd and very, like, funny, but also it's like, well, it creates a continuity. It creates a sense of, like yeah, you know, they what, what actually has changed so much since classical times, and some things haven't, like a lot of, you know, human emotions and motivations and, the way we think about ourselves in the world, uh, and that's very much like the point of uh, some. and I want to, in some respects, is that yeah, we are the spiritual heirs of Carthage. Yeah,
0: and I
2: think the point that um, uh, Chesterton makes in *The Everlasting Man* about Carthage is like main thesis is that. Like, you know, you might look at like in mass from sacrifice and think they're uncivilized, but he's arguing they're actually like overcivilized. Like, this is what you do like when you're like too uh, comfortable, like, you have like this like mercantile, like, capitalist class that's like um you know very like they're trained to be like very unscrupulous in extracting profit and you have like a very like uh settled like uh kind of like uh comfortable uh people with like uh, uh an urban underclass or whatever like um he uses the example too he's like uh i think he says like was it cannibalism or some kind of sacrifice it was practiced among the new new zealand maori who are much more civilized um but not among like the australian aborigines like they're just like totally like you know they live in huts and like they would never they like they like why would you think about like throwing a child into the fire um, right so d- d- these
3: are manifestations of decadence yeah you know? yeah, yeah yeah uh because um, I, I, anyone can criticize like oh this 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 custom is uh is is uncivilized. Uh, you know, there, there's there's violence in this you know primitive culture, whatever. But the, the stuff that really grinds people, the stuff the the images that really stay with you are are the kind of more abstract levels of, of degeneracy and and of violence and of cruelty, which can only really be um, unleashed via decadence and
2: Uh, yeah there's like uh, I don't know there's something very deliberate about it like um, I think that there are shades of this with like the Epstein stuff too that like Mm -hmm. it's like you know the wealthy like uh they kind of have this desire to counter signal like common people and their dumb morality and by being like oh well we will like uh transgress moral boundaries for the sake of doing it as like an aesthetic affectation and this seems to be like mm-hmm. a compulsion that like uh accompanies money in like uh many civilizations and yeah.
3: uh absolutely you know the, the eyes wide shut of it all too uh, which is Perhaps related to the Epstein of it all, you know that mm-hmm. that notion of, of a kind of behind closed doors, uh, cultic, sexual, and perhaps even violent practices uh, mm-hmm. are part and parcel of of the Carthaginian, uh, you know, echoing of history <laughs> that you uh, touch on here.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting uh, that you note in the preface in your you know breakdown of the various modes of morality. And you mention the morality, the simple morality of the bucolic man, and that that would not be a uh, factor in the poem so much because you know simply it's it's not the subject of the poem or the object of the poem. But as we're talking about it right now, the simple morality of the bucolic man, and I'll, I'm about to ask you what you you know your sense of that is. But my sense of that is that something like child sacrifice. It's just it would have no place there because, like, they... yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, now,
2: yeah, yeah. You know, I don't picture like uh, uh, you know Joe Schmo from Pennsylvania like throwing uh, his child into the fire. Like, it seems to be like a, a, an affectation that people take on uh, uh, without you know without really even considering it um, in you know the kind of like mercurial uh, urban centers. But um, you know, it just occurred to me right now as you're uh, describing this that like the um, in Four Faces, you know, I'm kind of like identifying a similar phenomenon where like the morality of the bucolic man that I find hard to relate to on some level is like Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. Like I, I say that he reminds me of like the guys in high school that mm-hmm. like are fine, like you know, I get along with them just fine, but like don't really like relate to it all. And like you know, he's just like a very like uh, straightforward person in many ways, whereas you know, I'm like. Uh, you know, always, on like so many levels of like uh, you know subversion and like uh, uh, you know postmodernism or whatever. It's like total brain poisoning. Um, yeah. But sorry, that's uh, you know that just, just yeah. occurred to me now that uh, you know you might be
1: highlighting like some uh, similarity in the in the two works you've discussed. Absolutely, that actually occurred to me as well. That uh, Kyle's morality mm-hmm. would be the bucolic man morality would be and, and that there are, is a class of people who just you know simply do the right thing <laughs> don't really have to like yeah. think about it don't have to be, like, like oh like
2: you know why were you
1: <laughs> like Why should i do the thing? right thing or you have to like reason your way into doing the right thing or why were you putting to, out fires because yeah. uh, the building was on fire <laughs> like <laughs> right yeah but, yeah, well, you know. I mean,
3: th- yeah. When I was mentioning earlier, like, as you highlight in um, you know the four phases piece, like it's not so much that any one of us here probably was ever at a serious risk of like becoming an antifa type, but the commonality is, I think I don't mean to speak for all three of us, but you know we're we're not necessarily you know the, the Kyle Rittenhouse who uh, you know probably lives near where he was born and uh, et cetera, et cetera. We, we've all kind of been through, as you said, levels of not feeling quite at home in the world or in our surroundings. And, you know, have gone on various philosophical and political journeys to, to kind of think through that. And, you know, we're not Antifa, uh, but you know, we, we've had our own kind of rebellion against certain aspects of, you know, within society and there's that common out there's that level of commonality, you know, we're, we're not the straightforward, uh, bucolic morality doesn't necessarily it doesn't come as easily to some uh and that's also not necessarily a bad thing i think people are called in in different directions um but there is a certain kind of more philosophical or i don't know how you describe it but yeah it's 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 a it's a little different Mm -hmm.
1: so we um and you know stop us if you haven't heard of him or you're not familiar but matt and i were talking about the morality of the bucolic man and the way you've kind of set it up or described it, and we saw a real similarity to another writer that we've profiled. Uh, at least his sense of uh, what such a you know a world or morality would be, and that's uh, Mike Ma, and he sets up a vision of kind of the morality of bucolic man as being a very like pronatalist uh, self-sustaining society he essentially uh, cites the Amish as an example of like this is like the the right the true path and uh-huh. the, um, the parallel that um, we saw here kind of like it jumped out at us a little bit especially because ma, believes that you need to accelerate into that, that society today could not sustain that vision without collapsing. And you, I, I'm not sure exactly where you stand on that, but in the preface, you mentioned something about, um, the need to accelerate and, and, and yet you maintain that this bucolic man, this, you know, return to a, uh, a healthy tradition is, uh, you know, necessary and desirable. And, uh, and the path there, you know, is perhaps through acceleration. So, um, well, go on.
2: Um, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't read Mike Mom myself. Uh, you know, I'm aware of, of the man and, um, you know, I've, uh, friends of mine are very uh, deeply into him. Um, <laughs> that's interesting, though. I mean, I'm always kind of like fascinated by the, these like, uh, like kind of like uh, strange, like peripheral, like uh, kind of. Um, almost, like, meme like, religious communities that people yeah. think are just, like, strange and kind of goofy that, like, nonetheless, like, double their population every 20 years. I think that they're, like, a hugely, like, undervalued, like, part of America's demographic future. Um, so, and also, I would, you know, even though I, like, like people say accelerationism a lot, and I feel like what they usually mean by it is something really dumb, which is like, oh, we have to make things worse so that they can, like, we have to make society worse on purpose so that we can, it, it'll make itself better. Um, and, you know, that's just like a horrible tactic, I think, for a myriad of reasons. But, um, you know, I think there are different shades of it where it's like, you know, there's a sense where accelerationism is just like using the tools of, uh uh you know neoliberalism against itself say um you know kind of like using like the system's own uh uh d- unique features to uh accelerate its own destruction and like that just goes in like culture as well like um you know kind of like it, it emphasizing like the popular uh uh kind of like mass market features of culture um so mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable being just like pretty unironically decelerationist in a lot of ways. Like, you know, uh, people will will tend to be very defeatist, like these technologies that we have now, like we're just stuck with them. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. Like there is no good future for the humanity that involves us carrying around this thing called a phone in our pockets all the time that has all of the powers that our phones have. And there's just like no way around this, like you're not going to solve this problem until you just ban smartphones like that's it like there's no other way um either like on a small scale within your community or like you know inshallah like the federal government just like ban smartphones like i'm just like totally like unironically decelerationist about this in a way that many people think is cringe like but like it doesn't matter like how likely it is to happen
1: it's like literally like the like Important. It's like yeah. the last hope. No, stopping so... progress in that. Stopping bad progress is a very interesting idea. And I was reading about how um, the. Uh, and this is a bit of a tangent, but you know, stay with me. It's related. How the czar in uh, toward the before the beginning of World War 1 but like it was clear that war was becoming mechanized it was becoming more destructive and it was clear that te- technologically unadvanced nations would not be able to compete they were going to get you know outpaced and their armies would be obliterated by the more technologically advanced countries and so the Czar attempted to like broker into he like had like two conferences where he tried to get other nations to be signatories to a stopping technology pact where they were going to stop developing military uh-huh. technology. And like obviously this didn't work, yeah. but uh-huh. but it's an interesting idea. and, and the thing is like it absolutely would have been you know wonderful. It would still be wonderful if we could <laughs> stop building new military technology. You know, it, mm-hmm. it would. I'm I'm sure. You know, I mean, in some ways, this is a race to oblivion. And mm-hmm. World War One, you know, what? Is, and World War Two is even more destructive. If, if you know, if it, the czar had been successful in this fantastical notion, how much better off would the world have been? Yeah. Well, I think that uh,
2: you know military technology seems like one of the last places to be prone to deceleration, even, you know, it's a huge collective action problem. Um, Absolutely. uh, And, you know, I was really interested in like uh, nuclear geopolitics at the time that I wrote something I want to proper Um, actually like I was actually really influenced by Nick Bostrom uh, at the time, but like um, I just, uh, you know, I I guess, like, it's a similar problem with regard to, like, smartphones and, like, communications technology and that, like, if America were to opt to be a cell phone-free country, you know, the stars just align perfectly and we ban cell phones, you know, Nick's uh, caliphate. (laughs) uh, overnight uh you would at the re- the way things are i guess it would probably entail like ex- an acceptance on some level of being like a backwater like uh, uh power like kind of you know just like struggling to hold its own against like a highly technological like chinese state but
1: yeah hmm. it, to me it bears a certain parallel as even as we're talking about it with prohibition because like You know, smartphones are addictive, they're something that people like to have. And so it's really hard to take away stuff that people are addicted to and want. We tried it with alcohol, it absolutely didn't work and had to be it's true
2: but like alcohol is like lindy on a scale that like a smartphone isn't true. like true. you know everyone old enough to have like a lucid conversation about like uh a, 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 on like new right podcast <laughs> remembers the time before smartphones like mm-hmm. that like uh y- you know it's just like extremely like not lindy it's like it, it, you know whereas like alcohol it's been here since times immemorial and so like you know to ban it you're really like fighting against like the current like the consensus of uh like 10,000 years like absolutely um, yeah no, that's true
3: no, I hear you the the, ex, the the when you use the phrase accelerationism um, in the intro um it's specifically applied to sexuality as they call, which Mm-hmm. Gets into a topic that I had specifically highlighted to definitely talk about, which is um, basically porn and whacking off. Mm-hmm. Um, and you write in your uh, in your intro that, um, and you don't mean this at all facetiously, that mm-hmm. you'd almost want to live in a society where your poem "Something I Want to" might be censored for mm-hmm. for its sexual content. And I found that interesting and and, and relatable. Um. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just going to take a stab at a bit, a bit of theorizing on my own. You can let me know if this mm-hmm. speaks to you or is kind of what you meant or not. Um, but I, I find it to be the case, uh, I definitely think that, so, so when you use the word accelerationist and that's, let me just pull out the quote because I, you know, did not, rather than speaking in abstractions here, you say, I'm not being facetious to say that I dream of a world in which my own work is censored by the compulsion of decency laws in which copies of sunbathing I want to are set to flame. Um, and become fodder for glorious plumes of smoke. And you're right, um, one cannot corrupt was already impure. And if I'm candid in my assessment of the civilization I confront. Uh, sorry, for, I don't mean to be like reading your own words in front of you. I just think you, you say it really oh, no, well, I so flattered. I just wanted to, yeah. Um, Anyway, if I'm candid in my assessment of the civilization I confront, I must conclude that a more accelerationist approach is necessary to bring about a moral regime of relative sexual puritanism and an orientation toward the common good. That is to leverage the institutions of a porny culture towards destruction and expose the grotesque character of the sexual regime with candid detail. Um, and yeah, that that I related to very, very closely uh, again. um, my own book that i that i published around the same time as this uh which i'd actually love to send you a PDF of after this conversation oh thank you yeah maybe, maybe you know no no Honestly, pressure. You know, i'll
2: just like buy it like uh because like i'd like to have the physical book but
3: oh okay yeah, we we'll, will we'll talk um, about that later we'll talk about that later but uh you know it is um not to and most of our listeners are already f- probably familiar with the book or many of them um but it, but it's all it's about um you know a young man struggling with sexuality and there's not too many descriptions of him jerking off. I think I actually took those out because I had too many <laughs> or something. But I think it's, you start sunbathing, I want to, with a description of your, you know, protagonist, so to speak, the Hannibal character, um, basically jerking off to porn, as well as playing video games. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you start in that, perhaps tragically, but very relatable space of, you know, the 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 guy, I think he's 15 when the poem begins, in front of his screen, sort of putting his sexual energy and his creative energy and his aggressive energy into that flat screen. Um, And to me, that made a lot of sense as a place to start. It's kind of where I start my book too in a different way. Mm -hmm. And and you know there's there's probably other examples. One one example from you know the the uh, the sort of canon of writers that a lot of people in our sphere read, um, Yukiya Mishima's Confessions of a Mask also has extensive sort of descriptions of this early you know earlier sexuality and and, and masturbating and whatnot. Um, it makes perfect sense to me as a place to start because. For better or worse, and probably for worse, um, I think that a lot of young men a lot of people, you know, a lot of young men when they get started writing like that is like one of the most present realities to them is these kinds of sexual and screen laden addictions and, um, you know, you write about accelerationism, which is interesting because I think it is a matter of just kind of accepting where we are as as a starting point, or, or as recognizing it as a placeholder for something else. So you're not advocating jerking off, obviously, but it's you kind of ha- we all have to start somewhere, right? And that is like if that is like your access to sexuality, if it's confined to a screen. Um, it's bad, but it's still, it's from that same seed that the virtues, you know, the, 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 the virtues you talk about too, the, the, those of a bucolic family man, you know, that is obviously, that is the flowering of a healthy sexuality. So um, where am I going with this? I don't know, but I, I thought it made, I just want to say it made total sense for me as a place to start uh, as degenerate as it might seem. You have to kind of start where you are. I, I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. It's, it's You're not an accelerationist in the sense of like, let's make everything worse so things can get better. Let's burn it all down. But there is a little bit of that accelerationist symbolism to like, before we can start to think about the way sh- things should be, we have to really honestly and clearly, and perhaps in a confessional manner, understand where it is that we are. Uh, and that yeah. was basically my gloss on that.
2: Well, you know, this whole like uh, kind of like uh, apologetic like, oh, you know, this is why I put this edgy chapter in stuff like I think that was very much a feature of my mentality at the time that I was like newly converted to Catholicism and I was like still like I felt like that kind of tension between like being like sincerely Catholic and being an edgelord. And Now I'm much less concerned about that. Like, you know, I I honestly have probably like developed more of an affinity for like cultural libertarianism since then. Uh, So I don't know, I don't know if I would uh, like, I, I think that there are probably like a lot of merits to a society that would like just like censor like depictions of masturbation, even like unflattering ones uh kind of like formally on principle but like that uh, you know it's not really like something i worry about as much as i did at the time sure. like, you know yeah. like i said i was like newly converted it was just kind of uh, uh me being like you know i was like what if my normie catholic friends read this like you know? no but i
3: still i you know and i'm not i don't you know go around thinking about like what should or shouldn't be censored either but i still think it's like a worthwhile sort of thing that you bring up because um like yeah we should be able to talk about these things without ha- endorsing them and i think it kind of makes sense to to lay it, it even if it, even if it even if you were just you know kind of even if it was a little bit of a cover like oh what if my normie catholic friends read it like i still think I mean, it, like it's i was very in interesting ingenuous. like i was just yeah. like and you know
2: i i keep it in uh because uh, well honestly i like the prose and i also just like the kind of like Trollish position of like the author being like, Oh, my book should be burned. So, <laughs> oh, I, I love it. I mean, that when I that like, was one of
3: the early like but, reading that, I was like, This book is gonna be interesting. <laughs>
2: saying, yeah, in retrospect, yeah. you know, I said I wasn't being facetious, but I guess I was being a little facetious, That's uh, okay. if I'm being honest with <laughs> myself. But <laughs> but yeah, and you know, um, I mean, I have like mixed feelings about starting it off this way because people will literally like message me, like being like, Wow, oh, I really liked your book, you know, that was really relatable. And then they like it revealed. To me, that they only read the first chapter, and it's just like everyone like dwells so much on like the very first section, like the very beginning, um, and so it's kind of annoying to me that like because to me it's very important for like the, the thematic arc of it, like for you know to have like the the kind of concept come out first and then uh, you know to unfold like that, like to as part of the whole work, you know, I think it's really important. Like I couldn't really cut it and it'd be the same, but. Um, yeah, it's just like annoying that this has become like the thing that everyone seemingly dwells upon. And I, I get why, because it's like sensational and like ridiculous. And it's like right up there up front and like uh uh whatever. But um and you know, people think I'm joking too. Like they think it's just like another like Nick Dollinger meme or whatever, like um that you know, that the 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 first line of my book involves the word fat, like uh but uh-huh. The, uh, you uh, the, know. Fir-
3: the first line in my book has th- not fat, but it ha- definitely it's about a penis. <laughs> Like I don't know I the, the, I view it this this will be my final word on the matter um, and I, I don't mean to overly harp on the topic if it's I don't I, you know I could it could devolve into kind of just joking around. No, I around get it. You guys me.
2: read the whole damn book, so it's okay. Like you have a lot uh-huh. to comment on. It's not just like oh wow, your book where you have like that one chapter I read about masturbation. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, in, in many ways, there's more than one chapter about masturbation, but you know, in different angles. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Hey, sorry. What H- were you
3: H- my final word on the matter is this. Um, You know, we are all the products of sex and sexuality and it makes sense that a poem, to me it makes sense that a poem about portraying modern life as being in some way degenerate and a, you know, Carthaginian uh, would start with, would all, would, would itself start with sexuality, but in the direction of, you know, the dead flat screen, so to speak. It's like, it's like the birth of the poem is, is a fap. I, I'm not trying to be stupid here. It just it
4: makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah,
2: the, the irony of it is, like honestly, like I've never like I'm not really much of a porn casualty myself. Like, it never really appealed to me. I think, like, just like personally I never got into porn because I had this notion in my head that's like why would I look at another man do that like isn't that kind of gay <laughs> um, and so I, I think like uh, like uh, masculinity grifters have kind of like caught on to that too and will say like you know watching porn is like the gateway to being gay but like to me it was just like very like like intuitive like my middle school self it's like no like I you know why would I want to look at another man's genitals like um, right. so <laughs> um but so yeah i actually feel like it it, you know personally like this is almost like something like my interest in it is very abstract like uh um my interest in pornography specifically because like i'm actually like kind of mortified by it from the Mm -hmm. outside um
3: (laughs) yeah no 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 i hear you i mean i feel like
2: you know as like a modern man like my brain is probably like contaminated by uh porn like through like osmosis just through the damage that it's done to the culture and like what that does to your mind and like how much that how much of that is going to like filter down to you even if you don't watch porn directly like um yeah i think
3: i think we all are you know i think
2: and i think that's why it is relatable yeah yeah Yeah, but um you know and i really like i you know i'm i became more attached to it after writing skip you i um because of the last chapter of that which deals with the assassination of Qasem Soleimani on my mm-hmm. birthday uh, what it was it my 22nd birthday uh, January the 3rd 2020 um, on the eve of the the CCP virus but um, you know I just uh, I liked the like as uh, you know i compared it to like the Ouroboros before the idea that like it starts off with like this image of like fantasy violence in a video game and then it ends with like real violence being committed with xbox controllers oh yeah. that's what i heard i don't you know i just like heard this i don't know I have a like, source for it or anything it may or may not be true but like it's just like someone told me that like the military operates drones with xbox controllers i've heard that too so accessible yeah. and so like you know the image of that like this like and you know i'm like uh f- from an iranian expat background and like you know i have like like no real like sympathies for the islamic republic i think it's really cringe when people act like it's based because it's like okay like this is like the society that their solution to homosexuality was to like turn them into autogynophiles by yeah. force. So yeah, it's like so much for that. And it's just like this very like ugly, like bureaucratic, like gray uh, mass that is not really based at all. But like, you know, the figure of Soleimani himself is actually like a Chad. Like he's like this like very like masculine, like powerful and magnificent figure. And for someone of his like very like humble background to be annihilated by like some twerp in like khakis, like holding an xbox controller in ocean away to me like that felt like uh, uh such a privation of like the proper uh, uh order of things of, uh, of violence yeah, yeah 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 for sure where there's like accountability and you know like the kind of like uh, apologetic like d- that's given as a defense of drone strikes morally is that there's less collateral damage with drone strikes which i think is probably true based on the data like by a pretty like significant like by an order of magnitude really um that like you know fewer innocent civilians and fewer combatants will definitely be killed by drone strikes but i would still argue like nuclear warfare that it's just like deontologically incorrect to yeah. uh inflict violence without
1: exposing yourself to some kind of danger uh uh so absolutely yeah no. And also just um, you know yet yeah, from a moral perspective And from, and this sounds, you know, perhaps a little pretentious and, you know, certainly like this is all a theoretical exercise for me. I've, you know, never served and, um, (laughs) but the, the idea of, um, there, you know, the ability to kind of achieve glory in war is something that has been central to our societies and human societies from the beginning of time. And technology has, you know, rendered that increasingly difficult, if not impossible. And so, yes, now you've reached, we've reached an era where a, you know, a man of war who, you know, is, you know, has, you know, is, was very competent, was, you know, very charismatic, had all these qualities, and he's obliterated by someone who presses a button And that is, you know, it's sad. It's, you know, from a moral perspective and from an aesthetic perspective, like the kind of, I I reflect to, um, for some reason, the um, kind of standoff on Stamford Bridge between the Viking Berserker and the Saxon armies and how, um, like, that type of, like, Glory of like an individual, you know, holding off other, you know, men who are trying to, you know, uh, kill him. And th- that is something that we can no longer really have today, I mean, mm-hmm. to, to a certain extent, a yeah. little bit, but not in a way that is, like, consequential, not in, like, like, this Viking berserker actually, like, allowed, you know, a significant portion of his, you know, comrades to escape and, you know, to retreat, right, and that's just, like, the, you know, we, yeah, there are instances of individual valor, but in a, a broader, and, and indeed, we're now, like, kind of, like, you know, people are, like, Thinking like, oh, could there be a nuclear war, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And that is indeed something that your uh, poem imagines at the end. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, yeah, like what could be a kind of bigger climax in some ways, but also like a, a bigger anticlimax to the human story mm-hmm. than for it to all end in mm-hmm. a flash. Yeah. Well, like, you know, they say like
2: the 20th century was the most peaceful century of all time uh, in large part because of nuclear weapons. Like it, you know, there are many souls alive today. Like, uh, frankly, like probably none of us would be alive if not for nuclear weapons. Like that's like, Mm. uh, you know, the reality of it, but it's like, you know, it's fucked up. Like, you know, it's like a trade-off of sustainability and, you know, it it basically becomes uh uh what's what do they say like as time goes on like the probability like the probability of like a world cleansing like nuclear fire approaches zero approaches or one. approaches one uh yeah yeah it's like as long as you have this power like there's always going to be a potential that it's used and it's just like um you know i don't know like that's uh i think that there's a force of entropy to that like uh you yeah. know i mean there is kind of accountability with like nuclear fire in that like if you're the one pressing the button to launch the nuke like and like, it literally becomes like a human extinction level event then i guess like, you've exposed yourself to violence for it but like you know just like abstractly like uh uh you know the remoteness of the ICBM I think is so formally incorrect you know I'm like a deontologist about war um but you know I guess like now I would probably like be less moralistic about it and more like kind of like fatalistic about it um because yeah there's like war like in like like military technology like deceleration is almost impossible to conceive of like yeah
3: yeah 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 there's 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 accelerationism and then there's just fatalism
2: I get what like, you, mean. you know yeah. from the catholic perspective it's like deontologically wrong to like you know drop nuclear weapons mm-hmm. like on like civilian centers period right and like so what like if you were like the based like catholic integralist president of america or whatever like what would you just like announce to the world like i will not under any conditions <laughs> press the red button like really? uh because that could create real problems like uh you know it's genuinely like that. It, it's they it's a paradox. Like, I don't think there's really
1: any like solution to it. Like, uh, um, I don't know. Well, it's like <laughs> Bostrom's urn of invention. Right. And so you keep, uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned Bostrom, so maybe you're familiar and for our mm-hmm. listeners who might not be like, let's say you have an, an urn with a bunch of different balls inside it and they're mostly white balls, but there's like, you know, maybe one or two black balls and every time you pick an urn a ball out, it's a different invention. But, you know, if Mm -hmm. you pick a a black ball, like that's an invention that could potentially destroy the world. And so a uh, a black ball would be nuclear weapons. And Mm -hmm. it, you know, there's only so many, you know, times you can reach in and pull out the wrong thing without, you know, blowing yourself up. And, Mm -hmm. you know.
2: And, like, uh, I think, like, epistemically, like, you always, like, you know, when you're developing new technologies, you always have to account for the, like, X probability that your entire way of seeing things and, like, framing things is just completely incorrect, right? So, like, they'll try to, like, justify, like uh hadron collider experiments uh whatever by being like oh well you know it's not actually that risky like uh because science like because of this and that and like yeah that's not going to happen but you know i feel like i don't know the first thing about particle physics but intuitively i'm thinking well what if your entire way of conceiving of like particle physics is wrong in such a way that um you know you actually are like creating these existential risks uh (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I that's interesting. I uh I feel like Bostrom like a lot of our people would probably think that he's kind of cringe. Um but I think I I don't know. I just think he's like a very like interesting thinker in like the way that he frames like uh like he has like this very like game theory like uh framing of things. I think it's like a really interesting like kind of uh I mean, I think he almost like is attempting to invent a religion. Um, but yeah
1: yeah like um, they they have said theorized that the the all the antidote to the you know the, the black ball problem is a um, kind of perfect totalitarianism where you mm-hmm. know everyone like a minority report world where you know what people are gonna do before they're gonna do it so you can stop mm-hmm. you know people from destroying the world with the you know black gold yeah technology. yeah i think like
2: a lot of like the moral assumptions and like the normative issue like you know there are like issues with like the kind of like uh uh formal like uh ethical theory of that but like like i wrote uh my senior thesis when i was in college was basically my attempt to like uh uh reconcile like bostrom
1: with catholic integralism. oh that's really interesting um, <laughs> i'd like to read that actually yeah
2: Oh yeah. Thanks. I, honestly, like it, it was, uh, it, it like, I, I think it was fine, you know, but I was just like jumping through the hoops at that point. Like, cause like while I was like really working on my thesis intensively, like that was like after the lockdowns started <laughs> and, um, and it was just like, you know, I was kind of like, just like going through the motions at that point, but were you, um,
3: uh, were you were a philosophy major.
2: No, I was in a program at NYU called global liberal studies. Oh. Um, I recently on my podcast I recently talked to Professor Michael Rechtenwald, who was Listen in that, that I, program yeah. Oh yeah yeah so he was in that program and it's a very small program um, and it's like a very like new thing for NYU as well and like uh, just a, um, <laughs> a weird like aberration um, of the system but yeah it was like I was in a concentration called law ethics and religion I think they might have changed the name of it while I was there but whatever. Um, but yeah it was like a kind of interdisciplinary like humanities. Uh, program nice. with an international yeah. focus so yeah that's uh that's my pitch to employers when in a job interview you know I'm asked about my major and then I have to say a paragraph about it <laughs> oh
3: it's not a bad thing it sounds <laughs> it
2: sounds impressive to me <laughs> oh thanks yeah <laughs> but, uh, yeah that's the idea yeah. it's good at like fooling people who don't know better
3: <laughs> <laughs> I asked because I, I was a philosophy major but no not even oh, okay to yeah it's... no
2: I actually like honestly like I'm pretty much like an autodidact in terms of philosophy like uh I am now know, too always... yeah like found it interesting but uh um i have like probably like relatively little like formal education in the topics that i'm oh. actually most interested in like meta-ethics and epistemology i think philosophy
3: is one of the better subjects to be completely self-taught uh-huh. autodidact in um uh-huh. but uh i guess to bring it back to the poem a, a little bit um with, i really was struck by the last section in scipio about you know that we were just discussing with soleimani and um the timing of it is really interesting. Obviously this was by design and I'm sure, I'm sure you weren't, weren't just writing a diary and happened to predict uh, the CCP virus as I've heard you call it, but- um, but well, it does... kind
2: of actually, like yeah. uh, there was like one passage where it was, uh, I think the first poem in that sequence where um, I mentioned like these existential risks. Uh, really? Like I gave, oh, you know, yeah, gave the the, most of them. Uh, with... yeah. And like Super I had written virus. that like at the time, basically like probably like in like the waning days of December. And I, you know, I got chills when I looked back on it. Like, uh, of course, like, like this was like published in like the early days of the CCP virus. And I was like, uh, actually like much more concerned about it at the time. Cause I'm just like, you know, it's just like, whoa, like our government government's not like, you know, it <laughs> oh, hasn't yeah, like too. implemented like, like a fascist state to like protect us from this, like v- threat from the Orient. Like how cringe <laughs> is that?
3: Like, um, but no, a lot of us
2: it, were there. at that Yeah. Yeah. But so I was like very like, uh, you know, unironically COVIDian this being like April 2020 at the time. But, um, it, it was uh yeah I, I got chills when i read it like just being like whoa like I, I kind of like had a feeling you know and i think that's kind of like a dominant feeling of the 2010s as a decade is that there's all these like world ending like catastrophic events that are like over in a news cycle like yeah, Soleimani know. was one of them that was like the last of them, exact, right? It's like, we could go yeah. to war with iran like and it was like so um like I don't. it was so um urgent and then but everything during the trump era was just like um you know oh like this is going to end the world and then yeah. nothing happened yeah and yeah, then, yeah you know trump and then something was happened and to and then be, things yeah. started happening and it would you know and it fucking sucked like yeah but, yeah no that's
3: what i was going to comment on. sorry just what the, were you saying just um that's basically what i was going to comment on is that the timing of it um, it felt. It doesn't surprise me that there was elements of it that were genuinely prescient because it feel it felt like you were you had a sense that something was in the air. And of course, you you must have gone back and, and put in more specific references to you know the Hubei province and whatnot. But nevertheless, yeah, yeah. Um, there is it did feel prescient, nonetheless. And yeah, you bring up a really good point about how we're in this site, and I think we're still very much in it. We'll see how Russia and Ukraine sort of plays out but you know the world war three of it all is all you hear about now and i you know i um i don't even know how much you want to get into to you know current current events but uh and i, I don't know how much i want to get into current events i, I don't i don't have any i don't there, there's so many takes online right now i don't really have you know that, that 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 you know nifty of a take here but uh there's just part of me that wonders if even this is not going to be something we're, we're thinking about as much in six months or maybe it will be i don't know but I mean, you,
2: I think like it's like most likely, like most things aren't what you think about in like uh, six months, you know, like uh, most things that have the potential to pan out to something interesting aren't, you know, I think this has like been a pretty like boring war overall. Like I'm just mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it, all of like the stuff on like the timeline about Russia, Ukraine, like fails to move me in any way. I mean, you know, like, you know, I'm, the, I have like abstract like empathy for people involved and like people who Mm -hmm. die and stuff but like uh geez like you know cut me a break you know um it, it just like seems very uninspiring but you know um I guess like the thing is now like you know after the CCP virus like you know, whether it was, like, a psyop or not, like, something happened, like, I think, like, a market change, like, they, like, put a, like, hijab on our face for two years, that was <laughs> some weird that was some weird shit, right, and so, like, we don't have the luxury to say, like, you know, oh, like, all of this is fake, like, nothing's actually going to happen anymore, because it's, like, well, most likely in any given event nothing really significant is going to happen, but, like, the point is, like, the black swan principle, it's, like, uh, you know, it it, it, it could go it, it could go there and it probably won't, but like, you know, it, it's all, you know, it's almost like a black ball in many ways. Like, yeah. so in-
3: Or it's, it's, it's a, it's like that image of the drone strike. I mean, I think stuff does happen and stuff is really significant. Um, you know, coronavirus significant stuff going on in Russia, Ukraine is significant. Soleimani was significant, but it's abstract. There's all these levels of abstraction between us and mostly we're just kind of behind our computers. And it's this, this weird thing where it's like the world is always ending a little bit, but it's on this really slow scale.
2: Yeah. And like, you know, I think that there's like this common perception that like the 2010s were like the end of a holding pattern where like there wasn't that much like great global change from like the, uh, the onset of the unipolar domain and like the end of mm-hmm. cold war or whatever to, uh, uh, or even before that, you know, cause like the, the writing was on the wall, but like, um, But from that to like the 2010s, like the the cultural changes were like pretty subtle um, or like, or, you know, I I guess like the advent of these communications technologies was genuinely revolutionary. Yeah. You know, people like weren't really sure what to do with it and it feels to a lot of us like now we've entered into a time where things are actually changing like i think uh someone oh who was it that told me that like um the 21st century like began with coronavirus yeah
3: Mm, that is interesting yeah
1: But yeah, I think that social media and communication technologies are to blame for the, you know, as the term has been bandied about quite a bit, but uh, mass something psychosis, mass mass formation psychosis. psychosis, And yeah, we have these various waves of hysterias that are, um, you know, caused, if not caused, they're facilitated by the spread, their their spread on social media. So before, like, everyone had Facebook, before everyone, you know, had whatever, um, like, look back to, you know, a perfect example is when Russia invaded Georgia. We we heard about it, mm-hmm. like you know, in Russia. Yeah. It's you know, Russia invaded another Eastern European country. It's a, really, it's actually kind of similar, and uh, uh-huh. we all heard about it. But you know, people didn't go crazy. People wearing like women wearing topless, you know, painted with the Ukrainian flag in in Paris. <laughs> like that wasn't happening because no one was taking pictures of them and posting it online. But now, yeah, yeah, now yeah. Now, like yeah.
2: my whole life in like, New York, it's just like a deluge of blue and yellow. Like, oh. yeah.
1: And like all of these things are like, you know, you, you see it in your more like normie friends who are just like, whatever the news cycle is, they're, you know, swept up in whatever that is. And they're like, you know, like, oh, we got to save Ukraine, guys, or whatever. And it's like, I, I can't, I'm not, um, I can't save Ukraine it's not by yeah. uh it's not within my capacity nor is it within yours yeah, it's like
2: really surreal to me to like see like brands and stuff like like tech platforms or whatever like have the ukrainian flag it's just like <laughs> just think about this like it's just like an american corporation or whatever is just like changing its logo to signal which side of an Eastern European conflict it's on. Like well like, that's
3: you know. yeah, I think that's years of COVID and then the the BLM stuff of 2020 sort of conditioning us yeah. to our corporations and corporation and, and corporatized people <clears throat> to, to behave in this way, where it's all about the symbol and being on the right quote unquote right side of history. Um yeah, no. I've talked about this with Dan and others, like the the Ukrainian flag just being the latest mask or yeah. black square, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I mean honestly, like I'm glad that it's like an attractive flag, all things considered, because <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, I think the color palette of it is very pleasing, and you know, honestly, like also I do kind of, I am kind of grateful that like it's like opened up. Uh, cultural space to just like kind of traffic in like the aesthetics of Ukrainian nationalism because it is know, intriguing I, yes i always think like honestly like uh just like uh, aesthetics you know totally disavow uh but you know azov battalion like just like i don't know there's something very magnetic about like uh like a sun wheel in front of like a blue and white like or a blue and yellow ukrainian flag like it just um, yeah. I, I just find it very uh 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 aesthetically uh gratifying yeah but anyway i digress
1: <laughs> the um the kind of in your poem you set up uh you know the us is carthage the us is you know essentially a worshiper of baal and the uh, the counterpoint to that in the poem is Rome. And in reality, like to what extent, and Matt and I talked about this a bit, and we talk about this generally, to what extent do you think the counterpoint in the, the world currently is between uh, U.S. Baal-worshipping culture and more traditional cultures, perhaps like in, in Dugan's conception of what tradition means, the various like Mm -hmm. cultures that um, are more grounded in their own particularities and don't want to promote Hmm. a kind of uh, universal um, morality that is, uh, you know, uh, very uh, progressive in its orientation. That's
2: interesting. You know, it's like a very uh, uh, imprecise metaphor that I use that like, the Roman equivalent, if we're Carthage, like who's our Rome? Like, well, there's none, like there's no other like world power. That's even on like a symmetric footing, you know? Um, and so, uh, in choosing to like make it like this, like vaguely Islamic other, you know, it's kind of a sloppy metaphor, like, uh, or it's just like, you know, it's by necessity. I think, um, but I think that's a good way to frame it, that it's like more this force of uh, particularity and like cultural specificity abstractly, because like you could say like China is like our biggest like geopolitical rival. Right. But like and in many ways, they probably are like uh, more. Uh, um, uh, what's the word? um like bucolic in their outlook you know oh more, yeah uh, uh, more rooted around in their particularity like as chinese so like socialism with chinese characteristics which is really just like you know uh, uh, which i think is like basically a current that's always existed within chinese civilization of like legalism and like uh uh you know the kind of uh conflict between like state and family but like um the yeah, you know, uh, Chesterton's portrayal of the Romans is that they are like, like he says almost verbatim, like, whereas like the Greeks had like an orientation for mythology, the Romans took like a serious turn for religion and they were just like, you know, very like serious, like family oriented, like kind of like cozy people is how he understands them. Mm-hmm. And um, And so I think that's what I was drawing on uh and trying to find like an analog to them is definitely a challenge but i think that you're right to identify it as just like this force of cultural specificity also i'm going to go get my laptop charger because it sounds good
1: yeah (laughs)
3: I'll hop in with a point about Dugan in a second, I think. Oh, yeah. No, take <laughs> that, that, that away. Sounds good. Yeah, you're Because that's a very, uh, I'll just say this when it gets back, That's a very good gloss on, not that I want to play apologetics necessarily for Dugan on the pod.
1: No, no. Like, I mean, it's a good point. Uh, I mean, like, and it is something we talk yeah. about all the time. How, you know, yeah. global homo versus, oh, cut that, <laughs> versus, uh, 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 you know, uh, tradition uh, Yeah. versus Duganism in a way.
3: I think so. I think, yeah, we um, will say this when Nick is back, but uh, basically, I, and that is a very good gloss on what Davidism wants to be. I mean, like he, he is a, you know, he, he has his own religion, but he also is, he leans heavily into that notion of uh, multipolarity and advocating for different rooted traditions yeah.
1: versus progressive universalism. Yeah. Yeah, which is a fundamentally conservative orientation respect for yeah, tradition for sure yeah
3: nick um we were i was just saying i was just commenting kind of on on dan's gloss on alexander dugan um that is that is as far as i understand it and i've read a little bit of dugan uh basically his his position uh, has to do with sort of advocating for a multiplicity or a multipolarity of different quote unquote, rooted traditions, be them Russian, Chinese, Islamic, uh, et cetera, uh, versus uh, the unipolar universalism, uh, universal progressivism that in his mind is represented by America. So I I don't know if Dugan is necessarily correct, or or, if Duganism will come to rule the day in terms of what Russia is doing. But I do think from the Duganist perspective, uh, that that is, that is, that is, the, that is like, I guess, the, the conflict is he want, that the conflict that a Duganist would want would be Russia at the helm of multipolarity versus, um, versus a, a universal unipolarity coming from, you know, represented by America, um, mm-hmm. that I think he would kind of agree with the sort of portrayal of it as Carthage that, that you delve into a bit in, mm-hmm. in sunbathing
2: yeah i uh, I haven't read Dugan myself uh, I've, like I said I've read vanishingly little uh, actual like uh, philosophy especially recently but um I've given a passing thought to having him on my podcast because I think it would be interesting but oh, um, yeah.
3: I, don't know, I think it might be a hard time to get him right.
2: <laughs> no, oh, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, now I guess it's he's a little on... uh, different. You know, this occurred to me like a few months ago. Like, man, wouldn't it be funny? Because I saw he was on Thaddeus russell's show, and I was like, hmm. oh shit, he got Duke. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's he'll he
3: he he goes on yeah. American podcast. So he um, was on Jack yeah.
1: Murphy's.
2: He was on Jack Murphy's.
1: <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so back in the day,
3: right. Uh. But yeah, whether that whether that actually defines the conflict that we're seeing right now, I don't know. But there's at least some people who 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 want that sort of Rome versus Carthage
2: notion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know if I have much to contribute on that because, like, I I feel like. Like, I liked the idea. I thought it was, like, provocative to, like, kind of have, like, uh, like 9-11 be, like, the first punic war or something. Like, but mm-hmm. it, I don't know. Like, I, I think that there's something to it. You know, it's also kind of silly in that, like, there is no, like, centralized Islamic power. Right, so right It's not, right. like, a locus of opposition, really, to the um, American state. but
3: Right. Well, of course, the other day, it's a poem and not necessarily a, a geopolitical tract, but
2: yeah,
1: yeah, But it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sunbathing at the end of time is, uh, well, then that's the name of what, what we might call the episode, <laughs> but sunbathing I want to refers to, and it's very striking, the idea of sunbathing uh, in the uh, you know, glow of a nuclear war. And obviously with, you know, nuclear war being something that uh, people are talking about or, you know, fear mongering about today, it's something that's very like, very, not nuclear war is attractive, but uh, the idea of kind of like sunbathing in, um, you know, some sort of like post-apocalyptic environment, it um, is a, it's a very evocative image.
2: Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, I, um, there is actually like a more literal connotation to, uh, the title sunbathing. I want to like, I like things with like weird syntax and like this kind of like the bizarreness of like ending on a preposition and like people just being confused and not getting the title right the first time. Like, I think it's like, uh, uh, uncanny and like attention getting, but, um, in part, like the poem is actually like meant to be like a tribute to my favorite time of year. Like I, I mm-hmm. think a lot about seasons, and both of the poems in Sunbathing I Want to are very spe- seasonally specific. Um, and that is like uh, for Sunbathing I Want to, it's about like the last days of May and the early days of June. Like that's the period where it's set. Basically, everything is meant to be understood to be uh, recorded from that time, uh, and. I guess like the title, it actually occurred to me because uh, in Washington Square Park, where I was hanging out a lot of the time, like, you know, around like May, June, like, there's just like a lot of like beautiful women, like sunbathing in Washington Square Park. And like, And I don't even mean this in like a horny way. It's just like, I just kind of had like this overwhelming, like feeling of like the self and the other. And like, you know, like a man, like just like forced Mm -hmm. to interact with like female beauty in this way. It's just like, you have this desire to like uh, demolish the barrier between the self and the other. And it's so um, overwhelming and it's destructive because like that distinction, like that's what allows for uh, love to exist as like a phenomenon. This is a point that also comes from the everlasting man, but like um, the the idea that God is like eternally triune, for example, it's, you know, because like you can't really love yourself, a thing that's indistinct from yourself. That's just narcissism, right? So, you know, these barriers exist for good reason, but it's also like a, a very natural response to like want to, Be joined in like this kind of unity or whatever and so the cleansing nuclear fire is kind of like the demolition of all barriers too it's like the human like will to uh just enter into like some unity but that there's this blandness to the unity and that's like entropy and like um but yeah, I mean, like right. I also just like really like like sunbathing, like in like in general, and like mm-hmm. uh, you know the the title, like when I actually drop it in the poem, it's definitely in the context of like the nuclear fire. But yeah, I just really like like late May, early June, and then *Scipio Aemilianus*, of course, is like set in what I think is like one of the most magical times to be in New York City, in particular. Oh, absolutely, like the day, the days between uh, Christmas and New Year's, like yeah. I don't know it just seems like so full of possibility even though i hate the winter like um it's just very magical yeah
1: no it um it is and it actually brings to mind um we keep talking matt and i about doing a segment on whit stillman and i think metropolitan is set between christmas and new year's in new york hmm. um but that's that's a bit of a non-sequitur when uh when well,
2: that's interesting though I'll have to look into it yeah that it's a sure.
1: really good movie which still means metropolitan it's like in the 1970s new york uh, it's uh, a a guy from the wrong side of the tracks during that period of time which was the upper west side was uh trying to get into the debutante party scene in the upper east side and he was like hanging out with the you know the debutante set and it's set during uh, the post-Christmas, um, pre Year's period.
3: It's the last time I was in New York too, now that I think about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. For me, like that was just like, I don't know, like the, 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 that period, like those days from like in, uh, 2019 to 2020, um, it just felt, um, I mean, I was working at a Japanese run karaoke bar at the time (laughs) and (laughs) I was in college, but like kind of like phoning it in, uh, you know, I had like senioritis, whatever I had senioritis since like before I was a freshman, but, um, you know, but, and I was, uh, in RCIA at the time as well. And like, I don't know, I was like actually like really grateful to live in the 2010s. Like I felt like very well adjusted to it. And I enjoyed it um and i felt like i was living in a time of plenty and and
1: i had this feeling that it was unsustainable um well you were right yeah. uh, and i I'm just i just not gonna like dox matt or me but uh you know we both work in the entertainment industry and part mm-hmm. of the cool thing of working in the entertainment industry is you almost always have the week of Christmas through the end of new year's off. And so mm-hmm. it's been for me. And I think for Matt probably is sort of like, it's a period where like every year it's like, Oh yeah, I get that. Like, you know, week and a half just to kind of reflect and like, you know, mm-hmm. have, have time away from work and time to, so it's, it's always been a very, Reflective period
2: for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, I um I have like the first chapter in Skip You is literally about like having like writer's block. And I uh I, I think I had like basically like written the skeleton of it around the time that it's set, but I put it on the winter solstice specifically because it's just like you know, this is like, you know, the bleed, like the blackest day of the year. Like this is like, you know, kind of bereft of like that light of inspiration. And so it's like about, you know, kind of like powering through that and like, um, and, um, but it just occurred to me very naturally at the time because, I guess like the Catholic liturgical calendar is also very rich from that time. And I was just like, like my poetic imagination, I always like gravitate towards like high concept things. Like uh, I almost come up with the concept intuitively and then, you know, kind of write the poem to fit that. And I don't know why, uh, but that's always kind of been my method. Uh, And so. um, Yeah. And, you know, I think that probably like one of, the things that I'm most proud of as a writer is like the originality of the concepts, I guess. Um, but like it just, I don't know. It just seemed very natural to me that like, Oh yeah. Like a diary about this arbitrarily chosen time in history that actually turned out to be kind of significant because it Mm -hmm. was just on the eve of the CCP virus and like Uh, the, like, you know, total psyop, like whatever.
1: Um, but And we are now potentially on the eve of the next hysteria. So uh, (laughs) yeah, potentially. I mean, I feel like we're,
2: we're in like a weird moment because uh, now it's much more unpredictable. It's like, you know, the center has already kind of collapsed and we're actually in interesting times now. (laughs) Like, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, to live in interesting times, like, uh, um, that's like, I don't know. It doesn't feel like, uh, you know, it doesn't feel like a holding pattern anymore. So, and it's yeah. gotten worse. It sucks. Like the last two years have done so much damage. My gosh. Like, oh, um, yeah. but
3: well, it is fascinating. And I know the people talk about this to death, but whatever, it is kind of fascinating how the very moment that Corona seems over and it does finally, I mean, I go into the grocery store and only about half the people are wearing a mask You know, which Uh is the first time in like two years, Mm -hmm. but at the precise moment, no, no gap with, with now everything that's going on geopolitically. Um, But I agree with you. Um, I, I mean, I said, what I said earlier, I still think there's an abstraction to it all. You know, I'm not saying like, boom, we're in interesting times, but like, kind of.
2: I mean, also like, you know, to be fair, like the geopolitical stuff, like that's a lot less unprecedented than like the idea that like your government's just going to tell you, you wear hijab on your Mm -hmm. face all of a sudden for two years and you also have to get this shot that's never existed before (laughs) 10 years ago. Like like, that's genuinely weird on a scale that like, whereas like, you know, we had like 2003, like we know what it looks like when like, there's kind of like a mass formation psychosis, like to uh, rally support for a war in a country that most people don't know anything about and so i'm not really like that put off by like all the ukrainian displays and whatnot mm-hmm. like it, to me like it, it just seems like well yeah this is like part of human nature whereas like you know the coronavirus stuff i was just like
1: oh yeah no it's like genuinely genuinely very flabbergasted insane. by how
2: disturbing
1: and weird it all was like, i mean people are going to keep wearing just masks kind of like, they're not gonna many people aren't gonna yeah stop. no They, like, uh, I mean, especially, like, I was reading a, well, it's not an article, it's a tweet, but some woman tweeted that her, like, teenage daughter doesn't want to take her mask off because she's afraid of people seeing her face, and, like... Yeah, a lot of like, you know, you, people who spent their teenage years wearing masks, like for the like from 14 to 16, they probably are probably super like nervous about taking them off because they're self conscious to begin <laughs> oh, with. Yeah,
0: I can't. Yeah, I mean, and,
1: the
2: problem is it like fits so neatly with like the female desire to like dissociate and not be seen and to like become invisible and just kind of like with her way into the ether. Um,
1: that you know, to enable that is like once you've opened that Pandora's box, it's like, fuck, you know, well, and and it dovetails with the uh, the overall, like, I guess we live in a feminized culture to a certain extent. But, you know, like, the bug man instinct to, like, interact with people as little as possible. So Uber Eats. So, like, you you know, you don't make eye contact. In the, well, sometimes that's for good reason. But you <laughs> don't make <laughs> eye contact in the city. And, um, yeah, so, like, I think a lot of people, like, in my neighborhood, I, I'm in New York. In my neighborhood, uh, a lot of people uh, wear masks outside. They, they don't need to. They never needed to. They, they're, you know, I, like I get that it's a party affiliation thing and they want to show that they're down. No, with... But I don't actually think that it's purely like
2: a party affiliation virtue signal. Like I think there are like people like especially like Chinese and Latino people who probably voted for Trump and like still oh, like, yeah. uh, d- are obsessed with mask wearing because it's like... Like I said, it's like a very like female instinct that like, you know, oh, like I wish I was invisible. I wish I could not be seen and like not be anything. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people just clearly like wearing them. And yeah, it's also like something that comes from the Orient and like fits with like, uh you know, the way that Chinese people like view themselves in relation to their civilization and it's very intuitive for them, but.
1: Hmm. Didn't. It didn't used to be intuitive for us but maybe it's. i mean hard. i
2: still don't think it is you know i think it's like the way that like you know there's compulsory hijab in iran but like at the end of the day like iran is a white country and they um have like an instinct that they hate the idea of like their women having to cover their hair and so like that's why like when you see irani women like wearing their hijab like they like you know they, they wear it as haphazardly as possible on purpose because like they're grossed out mm. by the idea of that like it doesn't appeal to their nature at all it's like this force that came from the arab like uh, uh southwest that um ha- it has kind of infected their society and i think it's very comparable in the sense that like yeah you have like moral puritans that like take it up as like they're kind of like crusade mostly women because they like to you know uh um they like the idea of telling someone that they're not following the rules people get off on that right um right and uh, so you have those people but like the actual like uh geist of the culture like they resent like uh being told to like that women have to cover their hair because like you know this like desert herder religion told them so and i think that you know like um his, the historical American nation like also has like that instinct where like you don't like the idea of like covering your beautiful pale skin and um, but
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah no for sure I, I think the way that the way that this all shakes out you know the, the I think long long-term corona stuff is over but i think that uh the way it will continue to shake out maybe for the rest of our lives god forbid but at least for the next few years will be interesting as certain people you know don't don't want to let certain elements of it go but i but i agree i i don't this is like how i saw it it, like
2: like about a year ago when it looked like it was over like a year ago um i had this notion and i think that i'm probably going to be right That like it will calm down aside from like the people that are permanently traumatized by Fauci or whatever, um, and like are going to wear a mask forever um, because they're neurotic and they want to dissociate. But um, I feel like it's going to calm down for a few years. But like the thing is, like you remember, you know, throughout the 2010s on the subject of like things that were these world-changing, like paradigm-shifting events that didn't amount to anything. Like there was avian flu, swine Mm. flu, uh, uh, Ebola, all of these like little like diseases that didn't really amount to much. But um, now if there was like, you know, if there's like two Ebola cases in Harlem, for example, like there were in uh, 2015, I think, no, like, you know, there, there's no question, like, it's going to be universal masking again. And I feel like after this happens a few more times, they're just going to, like, you know, drop them, you know, drop the mask and be like, no, this is just how things are now. Like, they did in East Asia. Yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah.
1: gosh. Yeah, no, but it's a big anyway. social experiment that we played on ourselves. And uh, we don't know the results yet. Yeah, so anyway, sorry to be so black but... No, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's cool. We're the new right. We uh, we deal with black and, you know, concept. I mean that in the, uh, you, you know what I, I mean. Uh-huh. Well, on that note, maybe that's uh, a good place to uh, stick a, a pin in it and um, sign uh, sign off unless uh yeah you have more stuff to add here
2: um no i'm just very grateful to for the opportunity to talk about my self-published vanity project <laughs> two years ago because uh <laughs> you know uh i guess it's like gotten a little bit more a uh, hype like a, a kind of like delayed reception like uh as i've uh been building my online platform more, more and you know i read a i read the skip you at. Um, Angel Fest at the uh, oh, cool. anti woke film festival. Yeah. That, yeah. So that was like, that was like really like pivotal for me, right? Like this like poem that I re- wrote like two years ago, self published, nobody cared about it. And then I'm like standing right next to Moldbug, like, yeah, um, reading about like semen and original sin. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, and, and then like Moldbug would like periodically, like, just like grab the microphone and tell people to shut up in the crowd. Like it was, you know, Uh, really like uh, (laughs) very powerful for me. Um, wish I could have been there, gosh. Oh, yeah, that was yeah, uh, yeah, I I finished it. I wanted to do something that was like totally ephemeral and totally like particular to the live performance, and I wanted to kind of like rewrite the poetic logic of it almost because I'm like super autistic about forms, right? I like, um, I want every live performance to be something that could only be live, and then the print book to be something that could only Mm -hmm. be fully realized in print, and so, um my way of like solving this was I decided that for um, and I did it out of order actually when I did it at Angel Fest um, for like the flow of it but I decided that for January the 1st I think it was or maybe it was New Year's Eve I would uh, replace the poem yeah I think it was New Year's Eve actually I replaced the poem with I uh, doused my a copy of my book in lighter fluid and then just lit it on fire while singing alt-line sign (laughs) wow um, (laughs) that's incredible uh, yeah yeah so um that was kind of uh my way of reimagining it for that context but um but you know it's just like yeah after that and after talking to moldbug on my podcast like just kind of um having the opportunity to revisit like this thing that's from my past and you know um, sunbathing I want to proper is definitely like the uh, the product of a much younger version of myself, I would say, and much more naive. Whereas, I don't know, to me, like Scipio Emilianus still feels like basically like uh, continuous with like my current self. Um, yeah,
3: I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah,
2: but um, I so, guess yeah, uh,
3: by by way of signing out, then what um, If you want to, you know, we talked about it a bit, but, you know, you're a reporter for the Epoch Times. You've got a great podcast, Mm -hmm. The Beautiful Toilet. Thank you. Thank you. Um, If you just want to talk about what you're currently doing and if you have no pressure, if if you don't have anything on the pipeline, but if you got any other writing, you know, coming out soon, feel free to pitch that.
2: Um, I mean, I've submitted a few uh, old poems because like there were like lyric poems that I w- uh, was writing like a little bit before or a little bit after like the, the era of sunbathing. I want to that I've been revisiting recently and I was like actually like pretty surprised by how much I liked mm-hmm. like the work that I was doing around that time like the shorter work. And so I've been like submitting those to like some odd publications I have a poem that was picked up by my friend, uh, Chris Gabriel, uh, meme analysis. Um he uh, has a comic series called Aonic Comics. And he actually picked up a poem I wrote uh, around the same time as sunbathing. I want to called um, Apologia. And it's written from the perspective of the paperclip maximizer. Um, <laughs> hmm. And it's like an, it's like an apology for uh, killing Nick Boston. In particular. It's a, <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's addressed to him. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, and so he picked that up for, um, Aonic Comics I don't know how he's going to Integrate it into the comic book but um, But let's see uh, That's definitely in the works There are other things that I haven't gotten responses on um, I don't know I, t- I talked to Manuel briefly About writing uh, uh, Some kind of Response essay to the recent uh, Joe Bernstein article About um, The oh, sure. uh, Anti-Woke Film Festival And Mold book Poetry Night And you know his uh, kind of, like, mental gymnastics about um, having a, what's it called? Uh, You know, like, you can't write a hit piece on a dead gay black guy, so you have (laughs) to... uh... You have to, but you also can't say anything too nice about people taking teal money for an anti woke film festival. So, his like galaxy brain contortion is that the dead gay black guy was doing it ironically um, to make fun to make fun of taking teal money. But I actually liked the Bernstein article. Uh, that's my hottest take: is that I, you know, I just thought it was like a heartfelt, like uh, you know, misguided but like sincere tribute to this guy um, who I didn't know personally, um, but anyway yeah so that's what's in the pipeline I guess um you know more podcast episodes coming fairly regularly now now that I'm a little bit more settled I've uh been able to do the podcast more frequently I think awesome Um, it's fun podcasting oh yeah for sure and it's like (laughs) uh I don't know it's great and I'm also you know I'm a big podcast slut like uh I'll do basically anything not that uh not that you guys are like the bottom of the barrel or anything like I don't, you know, I don't mean to insinuate like oh I'll go on any dumb podcast. But, like everything I've been on so far has been like transcendental and I really liked uh, you know like I said I was really grateful to like talk about the sunbathing I want to like uh on someone's show you know I'm flattered that uh that anyone would ask and I think what you guys do is cool uh I love your episode with with your episodes with uh, last things and um yeah it I just feels that. like a, a lot of uh convergent evolution almost definitely
1: definitely lots of thank you for introducing us to the poem because like it was was actually a really good read yeah thank you thank you and um you know really as we've discussed prescient it's uh Mm -hmm. definitely Who knows? I mean, there are parts of it I'm embarrassed
2: about, like, because I was like, you know, when I first published it, I was like an unironic Covidian, like in the early days of it. And so I'm a little embarrassed (laughs) by how seriously I took it all. And I'm like, no, this isn't a government psyop, man. This is like an apocalyptic event. Like, but.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, we were all Covidians at one point. Yeah, we. Yeah,
3: you had to be. I mean, if you didn't know what was going on, which. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, well, I want to say I haven't I hadn't really read a, a poem in any depth since college and so this was the first poem i've read in a while really? and i yeah Wait, i'm just that's... not a poetry reader
4: huh.
3: <laughs> oh but maybe i should be uh but i'm not uh, but this was the uh-huh. first one i read in a while it was, it was a it was a welcome return um uh-huh. to reading poetry
2: yeah i recommend uh um uh are you familiar with tom will from apocalypse confidential not really no. i've heard of Apocalypse yeah. Confidential yeah he just recently published a a book of sonnets um uh all of them uh take after a line from shakespeare's sonnet 18 Hmm. and uh so it's like kind of like cycle like a high concept thing like i like and i really liked his project so um and he's also been very generous about uh promoting the beautiful toilet as well so
3: yeah no um poetry is definitely something i want to get get more into but Anyway, I realize we're we're coming up on the kind of two hour mark here and it's later Uh where you guys are than where I am, but uh, we should probably wrap it up, but it's been so good talking to you.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you. And you too. Yeah. So likewise.